every once in a while in the preparation of these lectures, I'd find myself asking and others asking me, what's the relevance of all this musico-linguistics? Can it lead us to an answer of Charles Ives' unanswered question, whither music? And even if it eventually can, does it matter? The world totters, governments crumble, and we are poring over musical phonology and now syntax. Isn't it a flagrant case of elitism? Well, in a way it is, certainly not elitism of class, economic, social, or ethnic, but of curiosity, that special inquiring quality of the intelligence. And it was ever thus, but these days, the search for meaning through beauty and vice versa becomes even more important as each day mediocrity and art mongering increasingly uglify our lives. And the day when this search for John Keats' truth-beauty ideal becomes irrelevant, then we can all shut up and go back to our caves. Meanwhile, to use that unfortunate word again, it is thoroughly relevant. And I, as a musician, feel that there has to be a way of speaking about music with intelligent but non-professional music lovers who don't know a stretto from a diminished fifth. And the best way I've found so far is by setting up a working analogy with language, since language is something everyone shares and uses and knows about. Now, last week, <clears throat> we went rather extensively into phonological aspects of both language and music, seeking analogies between linguistic universals and the natural musical universals that arise out of the harmonic series. You remember, I hope. Now it's time to investigate analogies from a whole new point of view, that of syntax, which is the study of the actual structures by which those basic sounds have evolved into words and words into sentences. And here's where the name of Chomsky assumes a critical importance. For Noam Chomsky, like most linguists, is not primarily interested in historical inquiry, such as monogenesis or theories of the origin of language, but rather in analytical inquiry, seeking universal rules of syntax and phonology, which can apply to the 4,000 or so particular languages that exist in the world today. Now, I'm obviously in no position to present a critical analysis of Chomsky's work, nor would time permit me to, even if I were. What interests us here is not the rationalist Cartesian philosophy to which Chomsky has returned to seek his roots, but we are interested in why he returned to those roots, because it is from them that his ideas of a universal grammar have grown. In brief, he believes along with Descartes that there are human phenomena which cannot be explained by any purely corporeal theory, that the purely physical theories of body must be supplemented by the postulation of another substance to be called mind, for want of a better word, a substance that has the same properties of motion and extension as does the bodily substance. This, of course, is in frequent conflict with empiricist thought, as exemplified by a Locke or Berkeley, and currently by the behaviorists who demand perceived evidence at all costs. But the Cartesians insist, and say further, 
that the theory of corporeal body cannot account for the most obvious facts of human action, the basic properties of thought, and in particular, the normal use of human language. Amen, says Noam Chomsky, to all that. There must exist in all of us an innate language faculty, or as he calls it, a linguistic competence. Now he starts with a simple but riveting question. How else, he asks, can we account for brand new utterances by two and a half year old children, grammatical sentences which they can produce without ever having heard them before? What rules enable them to do this amazingly creative thing? To say, for instance, I like the green ice cream. In whatever language, Zulu, French, or Eskimo, I like the green ice cream. A sentence which has neither been taught them nor is an imitation of that sentence previously uttered by someone else, but is a sentence newly invented on the basis of very skimpy grammatical data gleaned from the child's immediate environment. It is an amazing question. Just think about it for a second. Now, Chomsky arrived at this concept of universal grammar by steadily refining a theory in which he postulates what he calls formal universals, that is, genetically inherited types of rules that operate on the most profound level in all languages. I believe that in seeking these rules, he was driven by a need to see the world whole, to understand the human mind rather than the American or Zulu or Eskimo or French mind. He's always stressed the importance of the latent similarities among languages rather than the patent differences among them. The differences are indeed more obvious, but they are also more superficial, whereas the similarities are more profound and at least as striking as the differences. With time, in fact, the similarities grow increasingly more striking and infinitely more exciting because they reinforce our feelings about a single united human race. And I believe it is this almost Beethovenian impulse that has impelled him through his own developments. I suppose what Chomsky's really after is a system that can describe the miracles that enable us to form intelligible verbalizations of our primal need to share what we know and feel. And what this system does is to provide us with a new way of looking at that miraculous process by which we structure even the simplest sentences. And the study of these structures is known as syntax. But what does syntactic investigation have to do with music? All musical thinkers agree that there is such a thing as a musical syntax comparable to a descriptive grammar of speech. Now, using the terms of this syntax, they are able in one way or another to analyze and account for most musical phenomena, except, of course, the main one, talent. No one can explain that. But what of you, untrained and unprofessional music lovers? How can I make syntactic musical analysis comprehensible to you? I could try by using a musical equivalent of grammatical description, but imagine how tedious it would be. For example, I could take the opening phrase of the Mozart G minor symphony, which we heard last week, and parse it as we used to be taught in school to parse a phrase or a clause. You remember the phrase? Now, I could say that this is in G minor, 
and in a duple meter of half notes, and that the melodic material begins with two eighth note upbeats, which are respectively the sixth and fifth notes of the C of the G minor scale, leading to a quarter note downbeat on that same fifth tone, and so on and so on, unbearable and purely gratuitous information. It would be an endless description, and it would wind up telling you very little about the music, uh, more than you'd know from just hearing it. But, you may argue, that was only a description, not a grammatical explanation. That is, I have not pointed out to you the functions and interactions of these eighth notes and quarter notes and downbeats and so on. Right! Only, that would bring us back to musical syntax again, and you would have to own a great deal of technical terminology. But you could understand the inner syntactic functions of that Mozart, or any other music for that matter, by analogy with similar functions in language. And there are similar functions. Cognate processes operating in both music and language which are discoverable by linguistic method. And now all we need is to have analogous terms in which to articulate them. So let's pull up our socks and make a stab at constructing a quasi-scientific analogy between verbal and musical terms. I say quasi-scientific because in using a linguistic analogy, I should, strictly speaking, be committed to scientific method. But I am not a scientist. I will inevitably make certain statements in one context which would be false in another. Even scientists freely admit that they do this. And so did Nietzsche, so did Kierkegaard, and so does Chomsky by his own say-so. And how much truer of me. Therefore, I am restricted to hypothesizing and speculating. If I'm lucky, I may strike a nugget or two. And if I'm really lucky, I may suggest some hints that will stimulate further thought among those of you who are scientifically well-grounded. Okay, uh, let's examine one of the many attempts that have been made to establish consistent correspondences between verbal and musical elements. How about starting with this simple equation, a note equals a letter. Now, by extension, that equation should yield this one. A scale equals an alphabet. That is, all the notes we use equal all the letters we use. But whose notes and whose alphabet? The 12 notes of our Western chromatic scale or the five notes of the Chinese pentatonic scale? And which alphabet? The German, the Russian, the Arabic? Well. So much for that one. We've arrived at chaos, and we obviously need a better system. All right, let's try another one, more scientifically oriented, in that it employs a scientific, phonetic terminology, so that one isn't stuck with loose terms like alphabet. All right, here goes. A note equals a phoneme, which is a minimal sound unit, such as m or s or e. Then, a motive or motto, or even a theme, would equal a morpheme, that is a minimal meaningful sound unit, like ma, or si, or mi. In that case, a phrase of music uh, would have to correspond to a word. Uh-oh, we're getting into trouble here. And a musical section would then equal a clause, and a whole movement would be a sentence, and a complete piece would equal a complete piece. Well, that finally looks a little better, but it still has its problems. 
If we accept that a phrase of music equals a word of language, we are closer to understanding Mozart's music. For instance, take the second theme of the same G minor symphony. Now those first three notes sound like a word. That's a fairly convincing isolated unit. And so is the next unit. Fine word. But here again, the analogy breaks down because the last note of the first word, as played by the strings, that note also functions as the first note of the second word played by the woodwinds, which is linguistically impossible. It's as though one said the words dead duck with the final D of dead serving as the initial D of duck. Dead duck. Impossible. Then there's the further confusion in the use of the term phrase. Phrase equals word. Well, all one's instincts cry out for phrase to equal phrase <coughs> instead of word or whatever else. Now, why am I taking your time to show you analogies that don't work? For this very important reason, to get your minds into the swing of thinking about music in the same way you think about language. These failed attempts I've been showing are not in vain. And curiously enough, the best thing about this particular attempt you're looking at now is the uh, equation that seems offhand to be the weakest, namely movement equals sentence, which seems at first like total confusion. Try, for instance, to think of the whole first movement of that Mozart symphony as one sentence. And yet, there is truth in it. I believe it's no accident that the German word Satz means both sentence and symphonic movement. That's a very curious fact, if you think about it. But the fact is that there are no sentences in music as there are in prose, since most continuous pieces of music do not reach a full stop until they end. And if we define a full stop in tonal music anyway as a full cadence, and take that to be the equivalent of a period at the end of a prose sentence, then we can find dozens of those in the course of a movement such as Mozart. But in every case, that cadence coincides with the beginning of the next episode, or sentence, so to speak. So in other words, there is no pause for the period such as I make now to end this sentence. Period. Pause. Next sentence. It is in the nature of music to be ongoing, so that as we approach a full cadence in Mozart, We seem to be arriving at the end of a sentence, but no, on it goes. No period, and the cadence turns out to be the beginning of a new section. Now, I'm afraid it's dead duck time again. It's as if all music were made up of relative clauses, all interdependently linked by conjunctions and relative pronouns. And so it seems that the closest we can get to a prose sentence in music is an entire movement. Well then, given all this terminological chaos, what interdisciplinary terms can we use without cheating? I think there are some equations that will stand the test. For, for one, we can confidently equate a musical motive or motto with a grammatical substantive or noun, or noun phrase, as they say in linguistics. For example, the fate motive in Wagner's Ring operas. I'm sure you're all familiar with this fate motive. 
Now those three melodic notes are like three letters or phonemes or morphemes, whichever you prefer, that make up a word which is a noun, a substantive, a self-naming entity. I don't mean that it names fate either. It's a musical noun all by itself, no matter what it stands for in the opera. And that Wagner intended it to signify fate is the sort of semantic consideration we'll go into in our next lecture. And secondly, we can equate a chord, a harmonic entity, with a grammatical modifier such as an adjective, because obviously the chord modifies by descriptive coloration the noun to which it's attached. So those three notes of Wagner's fate motive acquire a specific added meaning because of the chords that modify them. For instance, cruel fate or kind fate or tricky fate. You get the point. I think it follows that if we can identify musical analogs of nouns and adjectives, we can do the same with verbs. The analog here being obviously with rhythm, with material which activates or motorizes the substantive just as a verb does. Here is, for example, the same Wagner motive activated by rhythm. Now what has happened is simply that I've added a verb function in the form of a waltz to the noun plus adjective functions already present. It's as though I'd made a musical equivalent of the sentence, cruel fate waltzes. Uh, one could go even further and show a combined verb adjective function, as in a Chopin nocturne, where this arpeggio accompaniment is at the same time both a rhythmic activator and a chordal modifier of this noun which appears as a melody. You see what I mean? I don't want to stop playing this, it's so pretty. But do you see what I mean? The possible extensions of this idea are innumerable. What I'm hinting at here is that convincing musical analogs might be found for all parts of speech. Now there's a fascinating subject for an honors thesis. I wish I were back here at school. I'd do it myself. In any case, now that we've seen some of the ways in which we can think comparatively about music and language, and maybe even have some terminology in common, we're ready to return to Chomsky and see how his principles can be applied to music. But first, what are these principles? Well. It would take all of our six lectures to explain them, but briefly stated, his work has been and continues to be a steady progression of insights into what he calls transformational grammar. He found in his early work that the existing concepts of grammatical analysis were simply inadequate because they could account for certain linguistic relationships but not for others. For instance, they were adequate to explain a sentence like, the man hit the ball but not to explain how that sentence relates to more complex ones like the ball was hit by the man or it was the man who hit the ball or it was the ball that was hit by the man, all of which are basically synonymous. 
I can remember in the old days back at the Boston Latin School, we were taught to analyze sentences by parsing, as I was <coughs> saying before, and that seemed perfectly adequate. We could take a sentence like, Jack loves Jill, and analyze it very simply by breaking it down into its components. Jack, subject of the transitive verb loves, Jill, object of same. There doesn't seem to be anything more to say about that diagram. Just a subject and a predicate. And in the same way, we would parse the passive version of that sentence. Jill is loved by Jack. Where now Jill is the subject of the sentence, the subject of the passive verb is loved, leaving by Jack in the lowly position of an adverbial phrase. <laughs> A perfectly clear parsing. Nothing wrong with it, except that it doesn't explain the relationship between the two sentences. That is, it provides no means of exemplifying the subconscious processes by which the first sentence has been turned into the second. Transformational grammar, on the other hand, does provide such means. Now, let me give you a tiny example. Here is the way a transformational grammarian would diagram Jack loves Jill. Don't let it throw you. As you can see, I'm not going to explain all those NPs and VPs, but I just want you to get the main point. As you see, this is not radically different from my Boston Latin School version, except in the method of diagramming. This tree diagram, as they call it, shows Jack on the bottom, still in the subject position on the left-hand side, while Jill is on the right, just as in my Latin school diagram, right? But it also shows us something else, and this is what's important. It shows us how transformational linguists approach language. They organize it on two levels, a surface level and a deep level. What you see at the top of, is the sentence as it is spoken, Jack loves Jill. And this is called the surface structure. What you see at the bottom resembles that surface structure, but it also reveals the sentence on a deeper level and is therefore called the deep structure. Jack love Jill. Now, there is obviously one little difference between the deep structure and the surface structure, which is, as you can see, the addition of the letter S to the verb love which obeys a rule of English regarding the present tense. And that already represents a transformation, albeit a trivial one. And to that extent, it shows us a difference between deep and surface structure. But now just think of that sentence transformed into the passive. Jill is loved by Jack. If we were to make a tree diagram of the surface structure of this new sentence, it again wouldn't differ significantly from my Boston Latin School version, except in the diagramming, uh, in that Jill would still be in the left-hand position and Jack would be on the right. But here's the point. We all have the intuitive knowledge that even in this passive form of the sentence, it is still Jack who is doing the loving and Jill who is getting loved. How to explain this paradox? What's Jill doing in the subject position when she's the object of Jack's love? The transformational linguist explains it by this deep structure diagram which captures our intuitions about the real meaning of that sentence. And what do we find at the bottom of this diagram? The deep structure. Jack, love, Jill. Same as the other one. Triumph. Now, since this is not a linguistics class, I've tried to avoid the jargon and the complex diagrams which are essential to a real explanation of the transformational process. 
that is the process by which the deep structure is converted into the surface structure. But the main thing is that we can now see two utterly different sentences, active and passive, and realize that they both have exactly the same deep structure. Jack, love, Jill, in both cases. Only the sentence on the right has undergone a passive transformation. You see that big word passive there in the right-hand diagram? That is the transformation. Transformation, that's the key word. What exactly is a transformation? Okay, Chomsky says, look, here are two sentences that are obviously related. In fact, mean the same thing, but have completely different structures. How do we get from one to the other? Obviously, one has been transformed into the other, the active into the passive. And that power to transform, he says, is a genetic endowment we all share. If it weren't, and had to be learned laboriously over the years, how come any child can do it in any language? A child is born, let's say, with capacity to learn sentences, right? Let's say he learns three basic ones. The man hit the ball, I like green ice cream, and Chomsky loves Skinner. Uh, that won't get him very far. But what does get him far is his equally innate capacity to learn certain types of rules that will transform those sentences into exponentially greater numbers of them. These rule types are called transformations, and they are the combustion engines of language. Take the passive transformation, for instance. Once the child grabs that very early on, he can already say that the ball was hit by the man. Then, once he learns the negative transformation, he can say, the ball was not hit by the man, and I don't like green ice cream, to say nothing of the man did not hit the ball, and green ice cream is not liked by me. Then, once he learns the interrogative transformation, he can say, wasn't the ball hit by the man, and doesn't Skinner like green ice cream, and am I loved by Chomsky? It's a breathtaking explosion. The sentences multiply like rabbits. Does Skinner like to hit Chomsky? Doesn't the green ball love ice cream? I'm going mad, but only out of excitement. And what excites me is that the transformational process is a creative one, which is responsible for all the varieties of natural human speech, from a child sentence to the most intricate word patterns of Henry James. And that process is made clear to us by this incredible invention called transformational grammar, through which we can see how the tiniest basic concepts or units of information buried in the depths of the mind are selected, combined, connected and refined and make their way up through the neural net to a mental surface where they are expressible. And so in a larger sense, transformational grammar can provide us with a model of how we think, not only in developing speech formations, but in all kinds of creative expression. Now, I guess that's what I meant in my last lecture by saying that this Chomskyan area of investigation might eventually enlighten us on the nature of mind itself. Well, it hasn't brought us there quite yet, but you can see why this theoretical system Chomsky has evolved over the last decade or two has been called revolutionary, and at the very least, a breakthrough. It's a breakthrough for us, anyway, because for our purposes, it offers at last both terminology and procedures that are directly applicable to music. 
Now, even with the tiny amount of linguistic knowledge we've acquired, I think we're ready for the experiment of making musical analogies with a whole prose sentence, not just a word. Any simple sentence will do. For instance, Harvard beat Yale with all the possible transformations. Harvard did not beat Yale. Did Harvard beat Yale? Didn't Harvard beat Yale? Will Harvard beat Yale? So, and I think we'd do better if we stick with Jack and Jill so as to avoid emotional involvement. These names, you see, are merely linguistic symbols, not unlike X and Y in algebra. So Jack and Jill will do as well as any. Okay, we've got our sentence. Jack loves Jill. Now, every experiment has to start with certain assumptions. And our basic assumption here would have to be the simple equation, note equals word, even though we know that's scientifically shaky. On this basis, let's construct a musical equation that goes, Jack loves Jill. Not exactly breathtaking music, nor is it even a musical sentence. But it serves our purpose by presenting three notes as deep structure units linked together to form a triadic surface structure, which makes syntactic sense. You follow that so far? Good. Now. Just as those three notes are linked together, so are the three basic components of the sentence, Jack loves Jill. Jack, love, and Jill, which have also gotten linked together in a kind of chain in what Chomsky called an underlying string, borrowing a term from mathematics. And the string looks like this. Jack plus present tense plus love plus Jill. Now, this string tells us all we need to know about the situation, except how it gets structured to form a sentence. And that's why it's called an underlying string. It's what underlies the final product, the surface structure. Now, by applying transformational rules, we find that there are at least eight basic sentences that can be derived from that one underlying string. First, Jack loves Jill, which we already know about. Then two, does Jack love Jill? Interrogative transformation. Three, Jack does not love Jill? Negative transformation. Four, doesn't Jack love Jill? Interrogative plus negative. Five, Jill is loved by Jack? Passive transformation. Six, is Jill loved by Jack? Passive plus interrogative. Seven, Jill is not loved by Jack? Passive plus negative. And finally, isn't Jill loved by Jack? Passive plus negative plus interrogative transformations. Now, that's a mouthful, but I'm sure you see the basic point that all these eight sentences represent surface structures as distinct from, but deriving from, the same deep structure. Now, let's go back to our three little notes, this triad and see if similar musical transformations can yield us musical equivalents. For example, the interrogative transformation, does Jack love Jill? How do we turn that triad into a question? Well, one possible way would be to use our modifier principle. That is, chord equals adjective, you remember? Which will provide the Jill note with an adjectival chord that is questioning and unresolved. And that would give us 
Jack loves Jill, maybe. Or Jack loves Jill. Or Jack loves Jill, I wonder. In any case, that irresolute last chord functions as a question mark, changing a declarative sentence into an interrogative one. Does Jack love Jill? Question mark. Okay, now what about the negative transformation? That's easy. Syntactic change of the love note from the major third to the minor third, thus plunging the whole triadic structure into the minor mode and yielding the sad sentence, Jack doesn't love Jill. And to make the combined transformation of negative plus interrogative, we simply combine the two musical transformations and it comes out, doesn't Jack love Jill? Question mark. And so we could go on with similar triadic variants through all eight derivations, but I'm sure you get the point. Now we're ready to take our next baby step into a slightly more complex sentence. Let's forget Jack and Jill for a while and turn to Harry and John, two favorite characters of the Chomskyan school. He's got pages covered with Harry and John. Here's a Chomsky classic. Harry persuaded John to take up golf. Isn't that beautiful? Now this little sentence has a massive deep structure which I won't go into except to point out that among the possible underlying strings involving persuasion and taking up golf are other implied substructures such as I say to you, there is a man named Harry, there is a man named John, all of those are subsumed. Plus other implications based on the notions that Harry likes John and also likes golf, but John doesn't like golf, and that if he did like golf, Harry could be seeing a great deal more of him, especially on Sundays, which is when golf is usually played, which is why Harry has persuaded him in the first place, and so on. <laughs> now the point of all this is that the final surface structure arrived at, namely that sentence, Harry persuaded John to take up golf, is the result of many transformations, not the least of which is the deletion of all those other implications. I press this point a bit too hard, perhaps, but only because I want to emphasize this principle of deletion, a key word in our inquiry, as you will see when we apply it to music. Deletion is probably the most striking transformational process in all language. For instance, that same sentence actually consists of two structural segments. Harry persuaded John and John to take up golf. That second string must be written as it is since it tells us who is to take up golf. Not Harry, but John. Now putting these two concepts together, we get Harry persuaded John, John to take up golf. Now obviously there's one John too many in the deep structure and he must be eliminated by a transformational rule called deletion. So out he goes and we wind up with our cherished Chomskyan utterance, Harry persuaded John to take up golf which, and mark this well, has been derived by rules we have never been taught and of which we are not even aware. Now I want to take you only one step further into the wonderful world of Harry and John. Namely, John was glad that Harry persuaded him to take up golf. Now, as you can see, there are three different structural entities underlying this sentence embedded one within the other. 
John was glad that, and Harry persuaded John, and finally John to take up golf. Now these three strings are knotted together into a sentence by the process of embedding. That is, number three is embedded in number two, and the resulting combination of both is then embedded in number one. Now remember this concept of embedding. It's going to bear, bear fruit when we apply it to music. But in order to accomplish this embedding, two important transformational actions must first take place, the importance of which you will again recognize when we apply them to music. And the first of these you already know about, deletion. You recall that in our last example, there was one John too many and he had to go. But now there is still one John too many up there in the second string and he's causing trouble. John was glad that Harry persuaded John to take up golf. That's clearly an impermissible sentence. You'd never say it, although you probably couldn't explain why you wouldn't say it. You couldn't cite a rule that forbids it, yet such a rule does exist in the human mind, a transformational rule called pronominal substitution or pronominalization, which is much easier to understand than to pronounce. It simply means the substitution of the correct and relevant pronoun for the repeated name. And so the second John is rewritten as the pronoun him, and a grammatical sentence is born. Now this transformation is extremely important. Imagine our having to go around saying things like, John promised that John would do John's homework the minute John finished John's dinner. Nobody talks that way, and it's perfectly self-evident why. Well. Transformation, deletion, permutation, embedding, pronominalization. What, I ask again, has all this to do with music? A great deal. If we revert for a brief moment to our old friends Jack and Jill and complicate their relationship by this utterance, Jack does not love Jill or Mary or Gertrude. It would seem easy enough to make a further musical analog by using our minor version of the negative transformation, Jack doesn't love Jill, and simply adding arbitrary new notes representing Mary and Gertrude. Now remember, we're still using that convention of word equals note. It makes a lovely phrase and is, in fact, a famous fugue subject by Bach. But the achieving of this phrase linguistically is not so simple. Consider the deep structure. Isn't that a beauty? Well, don't panic, I'm not going to analyze it. But to reproduce that deep structure musically, we would have to play something like this. Jack doesn't love Jill, and Jack doesn't love Mary, and Jack doesn't love Gertrude, all of which is repetitious and considerably less lovely than Bach's phrase. But this is exactly where the transformational process becomes operative. By deleting and condensing those underlying strings, we evolve out of that burdensome deep structure a clear natural sentence and a fine musical phrase. Both of them, and remember, both of them surface structures. I'm sure I don't have to trouble Jack and Jill any further to demonstrate that similar musical results can be achieved by other transformations, such as permutation, predominalization, and the rest, nor shall I trouble you. But with all this transforming, what have we really achieved? 
an interesting analogy between a sentence and a musical phrase. But then I must object to my own line of reasoning, and so should you. Is it a true analogy? No, it isn't, not quite. Because that sentence about Jack and Jill belongs to the world of prose, of literal meaning, whereas the corresponding musical phrase inhabits a world of poetry, sensuous poetry. This series of notes has already led us into an aesthetic domain, but that series of words about Jack doesn't love whoever left us grounded in the world of prosaic fact. You see, language leads a double life. It has a communicative function and an aesthetic function. Music has an aesthetic function only. And for that reason, musical surface structure is not equatable with linguistic surface structure. In other words, a prose sentence may or may not be part of a work of art. Call me Ishmael is part of a work of art. But it doesn't have to be. But with music, there's no such either or. A phrase of music is a phrase of art. It may be good or bad art, lofty or pop art or commercial art or lousy art, but it can never be prose in the sense of a weather report or merely a statement about Jack and Jill and Harry and John. To put it as clearly as possible, there is no musical equivalent for the sentence I am now speaking. Language must therefore reach even higher than its linguistic surface structure or prose sentence to find the true equivalent of musical surface structure. And that equivalent must, of course, be poetry. I hope I've made that point clearly because everything from here on depends on it. And here I go with another intrepid hypothesis. <clears throat> Remember, I'm only suggesting hints to stimulate your own thinking. But this is a hint and a half. <coughs> Isn't it just possible that by reapplying those same transformational rules of deletion, permutation, and so on, to a linguistic surface structure or sentence, we can transform it into a new supersurface, an aesthetic surface, namely poetry. And once we have established this aesthetic surface structure above and beyond the prose Chomskyan surface, then we can have a true parallel with music, poetry. It means making an extra push, or better, taking a leap, a metaphorical leap into the supersurface structure of art. Supersurface structure. Talk about the traps of terminology. Let's see if I can say it differently, avoiding the trap. We are speaking of surface structures, musical and verbal. They are unlike for the following reason. A verbal surface structure or prose sentence can be converted into verbal art by certain transformational processes, whereas musical surface structure already is musical art, has already been converted by those same processes. But converted from what? From musical prose? What is musical prose? Is there such a thing? Well, I've asked myself that question for a long time, and I have a short answer. Does the name Hannon mean anything to you? Hannon uh, was the author, if you can call it that, of those horrible, endless five-figure piano exercises we all had to practice when we were very young. And on and on. 
Now, that is some kind of musical prose, I guess. I know it isn't really because it's not grammatical, but then it is grammatical material in that it is like conjugating a verb. Amo, amas, amad. Yes, but that's not a sentence. You say, ah, but it is an underlying string or a string of strings. Well, that's exactly it. Musical prose, if it can be described at all, is underlying elements combined into strings, raw material waiting to be transformed into art. I suppose I could make a kind of sentence out of those Hannon strings by applying one transformational rule, permutation, to give us a cadence. It would be something like this. Well, that's more like verbal prose, at least it stops. It's got a period. Now, if I transform it further by applying the permutation a bar earlier and then immediately following it with another transformation, namely deletion, then it's going to begin sounding something like music. Listen. That's almost poetry, isn't it? You can see that going on like this, the more those strings are transformed, the less prosy they become, and the closer they arrive at a poetic surface structure. Now, I became so fascinated by this idea that I even began to write a fugue on this material using all sorts of transformational devices just to prove to myself that Hannon can be beautiful. Let's see if I can play this thing. better than that, but whether uh, it is or not, I've lied to you. The real reason I wrote that fugue was not to prove anything about old Hannon, but to demonstrate to myself a clear musical analogy with my newfound hypothesis about converting prose into poetry. And this hypothesis of reapplying transformational rules does not seem to me far-fetched even by the scientific standards of linguistic theory. I refer you back to Chomsky's own word, creativity, which he uses to characterize a child's ability to utter original sentences he's never heard before. <coughs> now let's extend that concept of creativity and reapply those same transformational rules to prose sentences, recreate them, so to speak, and then we may be able to account for the otherwise unaccountable creative utterances of poets. Let's take one such utterance as an example. Uh, for instance, the formidable opening line of that Shakespeare sonnet, tired with all these for restful death I cry. Now there is a supersurface structure whose great beauty derives from all kinds of transformations, and the most immediately apparent being the inversions, permutations of the word order. Uh, which rearranged into its more normal, less poetic state is obviously, I, tired with all these, cry for restful death. And in fact, the poetic beauty of this line results from transformations which aren't even syntactic.
For instance, its metrical structure, its organization as iambic pentameter with the typically Shakespearean irregularity of inverting the first foot into a trochee, tired with, and that marvelously heavy spondee in the second foot, all these. And those are also transformations of another order. But let's not be seduced into the delights of poetic analysis. We're trying to be as scientific as we can, and so let's stick to syntax. Now, obviously, this line must be syntactically derived from a substructure of prose, a sentence which doesn't exist, but which one could extrapolate on the basis of Shakespeare's single line. Uh, let me try. It would come out something like this. I am tired of life, so many aspects of life that I would like to die. In fact, I cry for death because death is restful and would bring me release from all of life's woes and injustices, which I shall now enumerate, period. <laughs> now, that's a long drink of water. That's at least 40 words. But it is, like it or not, a grammatically valid sentence. In other words, it's already in itself a surface structure. Now imagine what some of the underlying strings might be. I am tired. Many things tire me. I am crying, I long for death, death is restful, death would end my tiredness, and so on. Now, all of these strings, and more, have been transformed by deletion, conjoining, permutation, and so on, into my extrapolated sentence, and then re-transformed by the same rules of deletion and so on, plus Shakespeare's genius, into one single line, tired with all these, for restful death I cry. You see, the whole process is one of creativity, the big push, the metaphorical leap. We might try to visualize this process by a chart, a sort of ladder of ascending hierarchy, at the bottom of which lie A, all those basic elements, units of information, including everything from a morpheme to a word. A certain of these elements are then chosen by the creative will to express a concept and out of these arise B, deep structure, those underlying strings we know so well, which by transformational rules generate C, a surface <coughs> structure such as a prose sentence. And then finally, taking the metaphorical leap by reapplying transformational rules, we attain D, our aesthetic surface or poetic utterance. Now let's juxtapose a musical ladder chart and see how the two match up. Way down deep lie A, the musical elements to be chosen by the creative will, such as pitches, tonalities, with the scales and chords peculiar to them, meter with all its motoric implications, tempo, all the rest. And out of these arise B, certain combinations, melodic motives and phrases, chordal progressions, rhythmic figures, and so on. These are the underlying strings this still matches the language chart, if you see. Uh, these are the underlying strings which can be manipulated by transformations such as repositioning and permutation into C, a kind of musical prose, whatever that is. And here is where our charts don't quite match since, as you can see, the prose sentence in language is a surface structure, whereas musical prose can be construed only as deep structure. But we've been expecting this disparity, haven't we? We already know that music can't be prose. 
Therefore, onward with our leap and our retransformational process will produce D, the aesthetic surface we know as music. Now, this double chart is an eye-opener in yet another respect. Because of that disparity in the relative positions of deep structure and surface structure, we can now understand why it's been so difficult to establish all those other charts of equivalence that we tried to, in the beginning. Note equals phoneme or letter or anything. It may not only be difficult, but virtually impossible ever to arrive at any list of consistent correspondences because of that built-in discrepancy between language and music. But as basic as that discrepancy is, it's at least as important as the overall parallelism, and in fact the parallelism is, as you're going to see, more important. Because now that we finally have a reasonably parallel pair of ladders, it remains for us only to test the strength of the musical ladder by the same method we applied to Shakespeare's line. That is, by trying to extrapolate the deep structure of an equally beautiful line of music. Our victim this time is going to be Mozart, and the equivalent musical line will be the opening statement of his G minor symphony, the same one we heard last week. Uh, but first, I think we're due for a breather. <coughs> At least, I am. And we've been concentrating hard on difficult material for almost an hour, and I think a short break will refresh us for our attack on Mozart. And we'll resume in a moment. Everybody refreshed? Uh, Mozart's G minor symphony is such a revered treasure of our heritage that it seems almost sacrilegious to lay linguistic hands on it. But if we are to understand the nature of its deep structure, even one aspect of it, some sort of extrapolation is necessary, similar to the prosy substructure that we found beneath Shakespeare's line. So, Let's take the musical equivalent of that line, namely the first 21 bars of this symphony, and try to seek out one possible deep structure for it. Before we do that, let's first hear those 21 bars as Mozart actually wrote them, just to refresh our ears. And remember, this is the surface structure we're about to hear, the top of that ladder, the actual music Mozart wrote. home again in our principal theme. Now our job is to invent or discover a deep structure out of which that marvelous surface structure has been generated. According to our hierarchical chart, this deep structure must result from a chain of possible and desirable elements, or combinations of elements which are chosen from that mass of basic materials at the bottom of the ladder, the, the key of 
G minor, for example, with all its constituent factors of scale, its tonic, its dominant, related triads, and its relative major, and all the rest. Now, this choice of G minor automatically presents certain notes as consonant and other notes as dissonant, so that certain relationships of tension and resolution are already implicit in the choice. What's more, the choice of G minor brings with it that inevitable association we tend to have with a minor key, something like melancholy or uneasiness, dark colors, introspection. But that much discussed subject is really a semantic consideration, and we'll go into that sad, glad, minor, major syndrome in our next lecture. <coughs> now, going on with our basic chosen elements, there is also the choice of duple meter, two beats to a bar, a la breve, as it's called, which sets up such absolutes as upbeats and downbeats, strong beats and weak beats. Then there's the tempo, allegro molto, plus other choices, such as the orchestral medium of wind and string instruments, the datum of sonata form, stylistic features of the late 18th century, and so on. Now, out of all these choices will arise B, the melodic, harmonic, and rhythmic combinations which constitute the underlying strings, so-called, the specific entities that are to be recombined into the deep structure of those first 21 bars. Now, here are a few of them. The motor rhythm of the accompaniment, which is based on the alternation of a minor third interval with its inversion, the major sixth. And not only do those two intervals alternate, but each one is repeated before alternating. Now, that introductory accompaniment, or vamp, as they say, is not only a rhythmic motor, or verb, if you remember, but also a harmonic modifier, or adjective, if you remember, which sets up the key of G minor by outlining its tonic triad, giving us the tonic and the third, but conspicuously omitting the fifth, which, when it does appear later in the melody, will complete the triad. So we find that this motor is both a verb and an adjective, a kind of participle, which is both a rhythmic activator and a chordal modifier. Now, over this participial vamp comes the noun, the initial seed of the main melodic string. And what is it made of? Two notes, E flat and D, with the D repeated. So obviously, the D is the principal constituent of the three-note figure, due to the emphasis on it by repetition, to say nothing of its prominent position on the downbeat. Now, if you remember, I was doing something like this about an hour ago. We called it parsing then, and you remember how fruitless it seemed. But what I'm doing now must be fruitful because we have a syntactic background against which to view it. Just look. Now, what does this three-note design mean syntactically? Simply that the D, the main constituent is the fifth degree of that G minor scale. That very note we were missing in the almost triad of the vamp. So that D completes the triad, but more than that, it appears as a resolution of the non-triadic note E flat, a relatively dissonant note, which carries a weight and tension 
that must be resolved to the consonant note D. Now that non-consonant E flat is called in the trade an appoggiatura, a leaning tone, leaning on its consequent resolution. And in the stylistic terms of Mozart's period, such a dissonant note must be relieved. I'm trying as hard as I can to use words like weight and tension in the most precise syntactic way, avoiding any connotations of feeling or emotion. I am trying, but believe me, it's not easy. Anyway, to continue this syntactic chain, Mozart takes his initial three-note unit, repeats it twice, and concludes his chain with an upward leap of a sixth. And there is the first phrase of his melody. You can see that at this rate of analysis, it would take us hours to get through all the syntactic factors and structures operating in even these 21 bars. But you could also see, I hope, what some of these syntactic elements are like. And so with that in mind, we can now race forward toward devising a putative deep structure for those first 21 bars. And to save time, let's limit ourselves to extrapolating our deep structure from one point of view only, that of symmetry. Now, the reason I pick symmetry as our starting point is that it is a universal concept based on our innate symmetrical instincts, which arise from the very structure of our bodies. We are symmetrically constituted, dualistically constituted in the systole and diastole of our heartbeats, the left-rightness of our walking, the in and outness of our breathing, in our maleness and femaleness. This dualism invades our whole life on all levels, in our actions, preparation, attack, tension, release, all those, and in our thinking, good and evil, yin and yang, lingam and yoni, progress and reaction. And all these find musical expression in the oppositions of downbeat versus upbeat, half note versus quarter note, and especially in the elementary musical structure principle of 2 plus 2 equals 4 plus 4 equals 8 plus 8 equals 16, etc. ad infinitum. And that's why the clue to our deep structure project is to be found in the highly symmetrical formation of Mozart's main theme. Now this theme begins with the chain we've already discovered. And this phrase, which is two bars long, is immediately countered or answered or mirrored, if you will, by a complementary two-bar phrase, thus producing a symmetrical four-bar structure. But this double phrase is clearly incomplete, and so we find it followed by its counterpoint, uh, counterpart, another four-bar phrase, which is reducible to a similar pair of two-bar phrases. Now, the theme is now balanced, as you can see, but as you can hear, it's still incomplete. And even incomplete, those eight bars present the main material, four symmetrical strings of two-bar phrases, perfectly balanced and comprising in themselves a string of dualities, two within four, within eight. Now, from here on, we're inventing, just as we did with the Shakespeare line, dreaming up a prose structure based on the absolute symmetry of these eight bars of music. If we really stick to that symmetrical principle, then the introductory vamp accompaniment preceding the theme 
should also be eight bars long, or at least four, or at the very least, two. And in the same way, the new material following the eight-bar melody should also proceed in sections of four or eight bars each, always in multiples of two, and always aiming at the absolute symmetry posed by the theme itself. Well, I've been secretly working out this extrapolation on my own, and I've come up with something that could be construed as a prose equivalent of the first 21 bars of Mozart's symphony. Only it's 36 bars long, as might be expected of a deep structure, just as the single Shakespeare line produced a substructure of a 40-odd word sentence. And if I were more pedantic and more cruel, I could have made this musical deep structure even longer. But in any case, here it is, a perfect nightmare of symmetry. back to our principal theme. But what a drag it's been to get there. So much academicism, so many unnecessary schoolboy repeats, and such a lack of deletion. That's really a piece by a bad composer. <laughs> it's just stalling for time, the way people do while they're trying to think of an answer to a question. Uh, how old is Mildred? Oh, Mildred must be, uh, Mildred is 69. Uh, of course, my musical repeats were made purely in the name of symmetry. But symmetry is not necessarily balanced. That's a precept we learned long ago, and it's worth saying again. And what Mozart has done, as any great master does, is to make the leap from prosy symmetry into poetic balance, that is, into art. And he accomplishes this leap through those very principles of transformation so deftly enunciated by Chomsky. Only Mozart achieves thereby not the mere grammar of a sentence, but the super grammar of an aesthetic surface. Now, by far the chief transformational principle employed by Mozart is that of deletion, just as we've seen it to be in the deep structure of language. The most obvious use of deletion occurs right at the beginning of the symphony where my prosy four-bar vamp is reduced to one bar only. Not even two bars, but one. Now, what is Mozart telling us through this deletion? Two things. First, that we are not to expect constant duple symmetry throughout this movement, exact repetition, as conventional procedures might lead us to expect. And secondly, and far more important, that the bar in which the melodic material does appear, bar two, is not automatically a strong bar, as the first bar of a melody is usually expected to be, but a weak bar. That is, it functions as an upbeat bar. Upbeat bar. What's an upbeat bar? Well, for instance, you 
Know that little Beethoven piece all the kids have to learn? Fiore Lisa. Well, that's a perfect example of a weak bar used in the sense of an upbeat. Uh, you notice how clearly the strong bar is indicated by the entrance of the accompaniment in the bass. But we're not so lucky in the Mozart. There's no bass entrance to guide us, since the accompaniment is already there, has been there since the beginning. So how do we know which is a strong bar and which is a weak bar? Uh, you see, one of the great failings of our notational system in music is its vagueness in regard to this very thing, bar by bar accentuation. We're fairly clear about what beats a composer means to stress within any one given bar. For example, the first beat or downbeat tends to be stronger than the others, while the last beat of a bar tends to be the weakest, a so-called upbeat. So one, two, down, up, strong, weak. One, one. But music is not made of isolated bars. The bars group themselves together into aggregations of bars or phrases, and it is these bar phrases that provide the real articulations of musical flow. A performer gauges these articulations in various ways, according to the dupleness, the two, four, or eight bar structures arising out of our innate sense of duple meter, or by relying on printed accents or phrase marks provided by the composer. But even these marks can be misleading. For example, when a composer wishes to indicate syncopations or irregular stresses and similar surprises, this is especially true when the tempo of a piece is so fast that one feels a single beat per bar. And in this Mozart symphony, the tempo is fast enough so that it approaches the feeling of one beat per bar. One and one and one and one and one. And here is where we run into trouble. Because instead of dealing only with down beats and up beats, we are now dealing with down bars and up bars. So how do we know which is a down bar and which is an up bar, since they all look alike? One, 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 one. Every bar is like every other bar. Which is which? Now, most people, hearing Mozart's opening theme for the first time, hear it in groups of two-bar phrases, which is correct. But they naturally tend to hear the first bar of the pair as strong and the second as weak. Strong, weak. Strong, weak. But there's the rub. It's not so at all. The syntactic truth is that within this pair of melodic lines, it is the first bar which is weak and the second bar which is strong. That is, the first bar works as an upbeat bar to the second, and it is the second which is the down bar. Up and down. Up, down. Down. It's just the opposite. What makes us so sure of this? Well, for one thing, that very deletion in the vamp accompaniment, by which Mozart gives us only one single introductory bar, a strong one, of course, being the first one, thus automatically causing the melody to enter on a weak bar. Strong, weak, strong. You can easily see that this knocks the whole symmetrical structure of my endless schoolboy prose version into a cocked hat. Because instead of a shape that looks like this, 
a single introductory bar followed by four pairs of bars, the true shape turns out to be this, which is four pairs of bars right from the start. And if you think that's complicated, it even gets more so on this ninth bar, which is both strong and weak, a new ambiguity setting up a new asymmetry. So what, you ask? Why burden us with all this pedantic hair splitting? Isn't this all stuff for the musicologists? Not at all. It's of major importance to the performer and therefore to you, the listeners. For if the conductor fails to grasp the significance of that one bar vamp, his performance of the succeeding pairs of bars will automatically be reversed, hence wrong, and so will the hearer's perception of it. And that misconception will distort not only these few opening bars, but inevitably the shape and flow of the entire movement. And so the performer must understand what Mozart has done, that he takes our universal instinct of symmetry and plays with it, violates it, ambiguifies it by using the equally universal process of deletion to operate counter to those instinctive symmetrical forces that operate in us. And therein lies the creativity. That's what makes it art. If any of you still find this point debatable or arbitrary on my part, Mozart corroborates it in no uncertain terms by the way he positions his bass notes on the downbeat of each bar. These bass notes are all Gs, the tonic fundamental of G minor, but they alternate bar by bar an octave apart. Now, obviously, the lower G with which he begins is stronger than the upper one, which is the weak alternating one. And this clearly indicates the strong, weak progression of each pair of bars. Strong, weak, strong, weak. And this progression happens to coincide exactly with the bar phrasing we've already discovered to be true. Strong, weak, strong, weak. Strong, weak. And if you're still not convinced of Mozart's intentions, there's even further incontrovertible proof waiting in bar 21 where Mozart returns to this principal theme. And here, just as we saw it happen in Furelise, it's the re-entry of that basic accompaniment that pinpoints, like a ray of light, the exact position of the strong bar. We start with a strong one, right? Strong, weak, strong, weak, strong, weak, strong, weak. There can be no further doubt of Mozart's intentions. The purpose of his deletion is now perfectly clear. But you now ask, why did we need Chomsky to reveal all this to us? Couldn't we have discovered Mozart's intentions without recourse to transformational rules of deletion and whatnot? Well, certainly we could have. I'm sure a lot of us know it anyway, a lot of musicians. But it is in the parallel with language that such difficult analysis as bar phrasing becomes possible for laymen to understand. The language is our common property and therefore our universal area of syntactic reference for musicians and laymen alike. And what is really being clarified here, I hope, is a new kind of ambiguity, a structural ambiguity distinguishable from the phonological or chromatic ambiguity we were discussing in our last session. 
It must be clear by now that the surface structure we have just been examining, Mozart's, is dramatically at variance with my over-symmetrical deep structure, which we investigated earlier. And this discrepancy produces a syntactic ambiguity in Mozart's musical phrase structure, an ambiguity arising from non-symmetrical operations, but an ambiguity which is under perfect control, classically contained by the balanced proportions of Mozart's sonata form, controlled ambiguity, just as we saw it last week from a phonological point of view, as chromaticism contained within diatonicism. You remember? That's also controlled ambiguity. In fact, the non-symmetricality that makes us feel the ambiguous quality of the work can be regarded in itself as a kind of chromaticism, a sort of rhythmic chromaticism. It's a whole new ambiguity. <coughs> These ambiguities I must emphasize, even at the expense of repeating myself, these ambiguities are beautiful. They are germane to all artistic creation because they enrich our aesthetic response, whether in music, poetry, painting, or whatever, by providing more than one way of perceiving the aesthetic surface. Francis, why are we so moved by Othello when he says, it is the cause, it is the cause, my soul, or put out the light and then put out the light. Ambiguities, which you've all debated in your Shakespeare courses. And why is the Mona Lisa the world's most famous painting? I don't have to tell you. But there is one form of ambiguity that only music can offer us, and that is contrapuntal syntax. Now, don't be put off by this grand-sounding term. I mean by it simply the miracle of being able to perceive simultaneously two different syntactic versions of the same idea. Now, this miracle is made possible by counterpoint, which is the interweaving or, of two or more melodic lines, or m musical strings, as the linguists might say. And hence the term contrapuntal syntax. For instance, in this same first movement of Mozart's symphony, he's developing the initial motive of his principal theme. He's developing it by transposing it to a new key, isolating it and repeating it, and then tossing it back and forth between clarinet and bassoon. Now that's one syntactic form of the motive. But at the very same time, in those same few bars, there is another form of the same motive being tossed back and forth between high strings and low strings. Now listen to this. Now what is this but a new syntactic statement of the same material, the same initial two notes, very much slowed down, transformed by what, what musicians call augmentation. In other words, these two notes we've been recognizing as quick eighth notes now appear augmented eightfold. They are now whole notes, eight times as slow. Now, this is a syntactic transformation in the true Chomskyan sense, a structural permutation. And what's more, it is a perfect equivalent of yet another transformational procedure known as conjoining. Because these two, the, these augmented two-note motives are so composed that the second note of each coincides or conjoins with the first note of the other. Listen.
You hear that conjoining? And even that's not all. In between those conjoined high and low strings are embedded the woodwind figurations we heard before. And that's a perfect example of the embedding process. Remember embedding? So all these syntactic transformations of the same material are happening together. Transposition, permutation through augmentation, conjoining and embedding, all combine to produce that special musical wonder, contrapuntal syntax. I haven't enough fingers to play all that together on the piano. Let's hear the orchestra do it and concentrate on perceiving the structure. I hope you heard it all. But I hear the logical objection you want to make. Why is contrapuntal syntax peculiar only to music? Don't we all know about so-called double syntax in poetry, where a phrase can conjoin with either the preceding or succeeding phrase? For instance, the famous example in Shakespeare's 93rd sonnet, which is uh, quoted by William Empson in that marvelous book, which if you haven't read, I highly recommend, called Seven Types of Ambiguity. He talks about this sonnet in which there are these four lines. But heaven in thy creation did decree that in thy face sweet love should ever dwell. Whate'er thy thoughts or thy heart's workings be, thy looks should nothing thence but sweetness tell. It's a darling Elizabethan conceit. And these lines work equally well whether you put a period at the end of line two or at the end of line three. See, if we stop at the end of line two, it would read, but heaven and thy creation did decree that in thy face sweet love should ever dwell. New sentence. Whate'er thy thoughts or thy heart's workings be, thy looks should nothing thence but sweetness tell. But if we put the period at the end of line three, it reads, but heaven and thy creation did decree that thy looks should ever dwell, whate'er thy thoughts or thy heart's workings be, period. New sentence. Thy looks should nothing thence but sweetness tell. Well, and doesn't this double grammar or double syntax belong within the same mode of aesthetic ambiguity as contrapuntal grammar in music? No, it doesn't, for the simple reason that the doubleness of that third line of Shakespeare's is not a simultaneous doubleness. It is either the end of a sentence or the start of another sentence. And the resulting sense of ambiguity may occupy a given moment in time but the line itself, the actual aesthetic surface, does not. Whereas the musical lines in Mozart, on the other hand, all occupy the same momentary span in time. They literally move together. Now, of course, one more second of thought on this matter, and we'll all be trapped in a discussion of aesthetic time, of virtual time versus clock time, and clock time is what we don't have for this particular digression. Because now it's time to hear this whole Mozart movement again. Only now I keenly want you to hear it in a structural way, along with the delights of listening to chromatic adventures as we did last week. I want you to listen for the syntactic transformations that make it the great poetry it is, like deletions. 
You hear the deletions there, the difference between and this. You hear what's been deleted? And for conjoinings like this famous place. You hear how the two pieces of material conjoin? And embeddings, such as the one we heard before that I can't play. Oh, I can play it. Uh, sort of. At any rate, if these aren't enough for the eagerest beavers among you, you can also hear examples of linguistic repositioning, where the three-note motive is transformed by inversion. That is, just turned upside down. A clear example of permutation. Even pronominalization is to be found in this music, but I'll spare you that. Anyone who really wants to investigate Mozart's use of pronominalization may consult the score, bars 114 and 115 of the first movement, or else write me a letter. I'll be happy to explain. But now let's listen together to this whole first movement as played by the Boston Symphony. And uh, I'll keep reminding you from time to time what to listen for. Strong, weak, strong, right? Strong, weak, strong, strong. Remember, I warned you. That's the ambiguity. Strong, weak, strong. It all comes out right. Dead duck coming up. The no period. Music is ongoing. Slipping on skis. Remember from last week? We're back home. Now, contrapuntal syntax. Listen. Conjoining. One more time. the whole exposition again with no comments from me and see if you can remember
conjoining. See how the two things cross? now. Hear them? Now inversions. Duck again. No period again. Con ongoing music. Another conjoining. Contrapuddle syntax, last chance to hear it. Embedding, conjoining. Really your last chance now. Embedding, conjoining.
period. And that was all one single sentence of music. That's the first period. And what a sentence. God. Zatz. Ein Zatz. One in a million. Well, we've had a smattering of syntax. And even so, I think I've gone more deeply into musical structure than I've ever dared to before with a lay audience. But that's the lure of this university. One is always tempted by the standard of intelligence to try a little more than one would ordinarily. It has something to do with those inquiring minds I spoke about earlier. And I believe these minds can take it. Last week, phonology. This week, syntax. And next week, semantics, the embedding of both. And so there remains nothing but for me to thank you for listening so intelligently. And until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>